in boot camp, they taught you how to clean your clothes with a bar of soap, running water, and a slab of concrete. Little did I realize that one day I would have to know this. I love challenge and the challenge I got, that's for sure. Welcome to Diesel Stories. In today's episode, we talk with Rocky Sickman, survivor of the Iran hostage crisis and an executive with Folds of Honor, a charity that provides educational scholarship assistance to spouses and children of fallen or disabled service members. I'm Jacob Finlay, along with Chris O'Brien. Rocky Sickman, welcome to Diesel Stories. It is such an honor to have you. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's an honor to be with you. So Rocky, you are doing great work today with the charity Folds of Honor, and uh, which maybe you could give us just a brief overview of what, of what Folds of Honor does. And then I wanted to talk about your story and then we'll get back to how it all ties into this amazing uh, work that you're doing. Yeah, you know, Folds of Honor, Jacob, is an organization uh, founded by uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dan Rooney right now, back in 2007. And since then, over 35,000 uh, recipients have received scholarships. 41% of those are minority, and that's about $165 million. And so there in the state of Arizona, you've got about 85 recipients, and there's about $415,000 that Folds of Honor provides. So it provides scholarships to families of fallen and disabled military. And what a great, uh, great therapeutic job for me after what uh, I went through uh, in my my past. Yeah, your story is uh, just remarkable, uh, Rocky, uh, your experience in Iran. And I know that in conjunction with that, there was a rescue effort where uh, eight individuals lost their lives in the desert uh, of Iran uh, attempting a rescue, right? Yeah. Uh, And Jacob, I was just down in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, where I met 12 of those individuals that were on the desert 41 years ago. Um, and, uh, what an incredible gathering it was to hear stories, uh, about what they were going through and and what we were going through at that time. Yeah, that's awesome. So Folds of Honor essentially, uh, you know, is providing opportunity for the next generation beyond these people who, um, you know, either gave their lives or were seriously injured or disabled, um, in conjunction with their service. It's just an amazing charity. Well, Jacob, I can tell you that uh, there's not a day right now that goes by. I don't think about those eight individuals, uh, those individuals, eight individuals, and plus the other 90 some individuals that had the guts to try to come over to regain uh, the hostages uh, freedom. And that's what the American flag represents is freedom. Uh, little did I realize that uh, we would be stripped our our freedom, our dignity and our pride. But after coming home, I found out about those eight. And uh, as I told those guys, when I recently met them, uh, I will never forget. When I think I'm having a bad day, the man upstairs, he sends me a message, the number 444, when I'm having a bad day. Not too long ago, I had to catch an early morning flight going through a convenience store and I get a, a breakfast bar, a banana and a water. I go up to pay and I owe $4.44. That number 444 is just like, it's a reminder. And as I'm looking at this number, people behind me are saying, hey, buddy, are you going to pay? And I'm just like stuck to this number. And I say, you're right, God. I would rather be catching this 630 flight any day uh, versus being over 
in Iran with three rifles to the back of my head. I mean, that was the worst time. And it's, uh, it's something that's always a reminder. But uh, I, I remember those individuals and I remember their families. I have families now, Jacob, and you've got a family. And it's one of those things that they had, a, their family had to start all over. I mean, without their loved one that morning of April 25th. And I came home, had a wonderful family. Um, my kids, my, I got to go fishing with my son, kick a soccer ball with my daughter, um, play lacrosse with my daughter, walk them down the aisle at a wedding and hold my grandkids. Those eight individuals in this, and I apologize, it gets very emotional. It's okay. Is, you know, after going through something like that and, and coming home 40 years later, it's just, you can't ever forget it. It's something that's, it's with you. It's a weight that's on your shoulder, but it, it's just an honor for you guys to open up your airwaves to make sure that people are hearing this, that freedom is not free. And that's where holds of honor comes into play. Absolutely. And it was uh, 42 years ago last week, right? Yeah. So Rocky, you were raised as a man of faith and that's, um, you know, just reading your story and uh, hearing what others say about you, that, it, that that's, that's a major part of your story. In fact, uh, I think it was the family priest became the liaison with the State Department while you're over there. Tell us a little bit about growing up. You grew up in the St. Louis area, right? Well, I was born in St. Louis, uh, Jacob. Uh, two years old, we moved out to the country. Uh, my father wanted us to have a, a better life in the country. And growing up in a small town of Crockle, I called it, it's K-R-A-K-O-W, some call it Crockle, uh, Krakow. Um, but, um, it was a population of 50 that was dogs and cats included. And I mean, I can tell you that uh, my parents taught me three things, love of family, love of faith and love of country. And those three things, Jacob, they stuck with me, uh, during the darkest time. And, and, you know, it's something that I try to teach my kids to this day. Um, and, you know, sure enough, those things stuck with me as I sat tied to the chair for the first 30 days by myself, not allowed to speak other than interrogations and you just you remember just growing up in that small town and uh I, my father was an usher and i would be the pre or the the server uh during those masses and my father always chose to get up early on sunday morning five o'clock morning mass so if he's an usher at five o'clock morning mass his son me has to get up and serve so I'll never forget my father, you know, getting up that early and going to Crockle store. And I mean, I relived all those mornings drinking milk and uh, eating a Twinkie, watching wrestling at the chase as the men in the farming community are all sitting there talking about it growing up. But yeah, wonderful memories. And my parents, uh, they didn't have a lot of money. My father, again, was a concrete mixer driver and my mother was a carpet store secretary. And, uh, but you know, when we had holidays, it was like the Ritz Carlton. I mean, you just never forgot him. That's awesome. Uh, so great, great family growing up. And I love that your father was a, was a driver, commercial driver. Like we pay homage to those uh, people yeah. who do that um, all the time. So you join, uh, you graduate from, I think it was Washington High School, right? Played some football. Yes. Had some yes, college football playing opportunities, but you turned that down, right? Yes. <laughs> you definitely have been re reading some research. Yeah, Coach Scanlon, he was looking for a small school. Um, I really was not a studious guy uh, in high school. I was a captain my senior year. Uh, I was involved in student council. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so one day reading a New York Times magazine at home, 
um, I basically uh, went over to Union, Missouri, and I told this uh, recruiter, I said, I want to I want to do this job. And it was a, a picture of a Marine in front of an American embassy. See the world join the Marines. And I'm finding it very interesting. So sure enough, he did the testing and said, yeah, you can do that. I said, now, before I do that, I want to see the world because growing up in Krakow, um, it was 80 miles from St. Louis. And if you had a, a really uh, exciting date, you would drive her into St. Louis and eat at the Red Lobster. I mean, that was a big day. And so there wasn't much in our small town of Washington. I think we had one street light. And so I wanted to see the world and the world I did see. Went to Asia, went to Europe and came back and went into MSG. Yeah. I mean, you saw you actually saw a Marine standing in front of an embassy. And that was what inspired you. It was. And, and not only that, but my yeah, my father, my father served. Uh, he was World War Two. He was Army. And my brother uh, served during Vietnam. But, you know, growing up in that small town of Krakow uh, at the, the little Catholic school, we had a, a flagpole. And I was so honored to be able to raise the flag as my parents had taught me the respect of the flag and how people had died for it. And it was just something I wanted to, to continue to also serve our country. 1976, Jacob, there was no war going on, but I still wanted to go and, and serve our country. And yeah, so that's that's where it all started. So you graduate high school in 1976 and you're immediately uh, joining the Marines. Yes, sir. Right out of high school. Yeah, and went to San Diego. And in fact, my wife and I just uh, celebrated our, our 40th and we were out at San Diego uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And I spoke at the uh, MCRD, uh, the same place I had graduated 40, 45 years ago. Uh, here wow. I was back out there uh, speaking to these uh, recruits that were coming in as I was a recruit. And so it was really an interesting for my wife to see that whole process because she had heard about it. Uh, and of course, today is the Marine Corps birthday. And uh, she, I wanted her to see how a Marine was formed, uh, born. That's awesome. Okay, so Camp Pendleton is where you trained. Uh, I went to MCRD San Diego. That was the boot camp. And then, yes, sir, then I went to uh, Camp Pendleton, uh, ITS, Infantry Training School. Yes, sir. Instead of the army, did you just seeing the Marine outside of the post that that was the thing that got you? Or did you have, uh, did your father say you should have joined the green, you know, you should have been an, uh, an infantry or cause I, I've, I worked with somebody who was in the Marines for about, Oh, I don't know, 26 years, 27 years. And there's just Marines are hardcore. They're the first in, right? Like, so was there any part of that? What, what made you choose between the two? You know, and that's interesting, Chris, that you, you mentioned that because my father and my parents did not know that I had even joined the Marine Corps. Growing up, we would all sit together as a family and my father would go around and say, what did you do today? And he came to me and goes, Rocky, what'd you do today? And I said, well, I joined the Marine Corps and he kept eating and he goes, okay, that's funny. Now, what did you really do? And I said, no, I, I really, had, I joined the Marine Corps, dad. And he, he doesn't address me, he addresses my, my mother and says, Tony, tell Rocky to tell us what he did today. And my mom goes, Rocky, tell everybody what you did today. I said, I actually joined the Marine Corps today. And my father looked at me and, you know, Chris, it was one of those things. He, he never said anything. He didn't say anything until the morning I left. He cried. I mean, I never could, I never remember my father crying. He goes, son, I, I hope you know what the heck you're doing. I said, Oh, dad, I'm in shape, man. I just came out of football. I was a captain of my football team. I've been exercising. Well, I got in the Marine Corps boot camp, 13 weeks. And thank goodness I went through the Marine Corps boot camp because had I not been held hostage would have been so much worse. 
I mean, in boot camp, they taught you how to clean your clothes with a bar of soap, running water, and a slab of concrete. Little did I realize that one day I would have to know this so I could not only take a bird bath, you know, take that bar of soap, that became my toothpaste, and my finger was my toothbrush, but then I'd have to clean my pants or my underwear. The next day, I'd wear my uh, pants and clean my underwear. It, it was a life survival. It was always a difficult, challenging things. I love challenge and the challenge I got, that's for sure. So you end up, so you go to Asia and then Europe and in the middle of all this, you meet Jill. Yes. Yeah. It, Jill had gone to the same high school. I was a senior. She was a freshman. I knew her brothers. I never knew that Jerry and Joey had a, a sister. And the story that Jill tells everybody that she had a crush on me and she was the smallest girl in high school. I dated some of her girlfriends, but I ever, never met Jill. And her brother said, don't ever talk to my, my friends. You'll be embarrassing me. So it wasn't until I'm overseas, I'm in, uh, in the Mediterranean. My sister wrote me a letter and she says, hey, I got you fixed up on a blind date when you come home. I said, okay. Um, and she goes, Jill Ditch. And I'm and sitting there, Jill Ditch. And you know, again, we're coming back. And I was in the Mediterranean in January of 1979 when the Americans were evacuated from Moran in 1979. So, you know, interesting, the synchronicity of here, I am in the Mediterranean, the Iran thing happens, my sister sends me a note and says, hey, I got you fixed up. I return home and sure enough, I, I go that night to meet Jill and knock on the door and she opens the door and I, I look at, at Jill Ditch, I'm like, where were you in high school? It's like, this girl blossomed into this beautiful woman and so anyway, that started uh, the rest. And so, yeah, we had uh, stayed together and uh, communicated. She was 18. I was 22. She was just graduating, going to uh, school for a dance um, scholarship. And I said, hey, I'm going to do this. This is my last gig I want to do before I get out. And uh, we were going to meet each other in December to go snow skiing in Germany, which obviously never happened. Yeah, you know, I uh, I saw Argo for the first time, I think, last year. And, I mean, it's a, just a gripping movie. And I know you helped with the production um, of that as a consultant. No, well, not really uh, helped. Um, it, this is, again, a very interesting story. My wife and I are at a wedding in Columbus, Ohio. And the father of the bride goes, Rocky, I want you to meet my sister. She's a casting director out in L.A. Her name is Debbie Zane. And uh, he goes, you never know if she might be able to help your son out. Uh, my son, Spencer, ever since he was six years old, he said, dad, I want to be an actor. I looked at him like, what the heck is that? I mean, cause I wasn't an actor. My, my wife was into acting. I was the jock. But anyway, we're at this wedding. I meet this young lady. It's three days later. She's out in LA emailing her girlfriend, asking her, Hey, what are you doing? Her girlfriend comes back and says, I'm, I'm working with Ben Affleck, George Clooney, John Goodman, and a cast of others on this movie about the Iran hostage crisis. And the girl we just met, she goes, that's interesting. I was just at a wedding with one of the hostages. And they're typing, who was that? She goes, Rocky Sickman. She goes, the girl comes back, Rocky Sickman. Was he one of the Marines? And the girl, yeah, he was uh, held for 444 days. She goes, his character is in the movie, Sergeant Sickman, played by Ryan Ahern, a much better looking guy. Than, thank goodness. And so anyway, they take it upon themselves, this girl that we had just met, she asked her girlfriend, hey, what's the chance of Ben meeting Rocky? He was there for 444 days. The movie is about six individuals that worked at the Visa building. 
Three of those six I had breakfast with on the morning of November 4th. Little did we know that four hours later, our life would be turned upside down and never the same. Uh, I never knew that they were rescued. And so anyway, long story short, five days, um, Ben comes back and says, yeah, I'd love to meet Rocky, bring him out, bring his son, and we'll put him in a movie. And shit like that doesn't happen, guys. I hate to tell you. So I fly my son overnight. On the sixth day, we're on the set of Argo. And so my son, long hair, uh, because that's what it was, 1979, uh, we walk into the set of Argo, and I can tell you, it was so real. Spencer was in a mail delivery room. Uh, he was delivering uh, mail in the CIA room. And uh, he said, Dad, the letters were all marked 1979. I mean, during that time of the, the, uh, the hostage crisis. Ben comes over. He grabs me, hugs me, goes, Rocky, it's an honor to meet you. I said, Ben, it's an honor to meet you. He goes, I got to get this movie shot real quick. You go in the back and sit with Chris Terrio. He's the guy that wrote the script. We sit in the back. They're focusing in on my son and I, being a parent. And uh, it's one of those things that you, you see that your son wanted to be an actor because here he is, Argo. I mean, which we didn't know is an Academy Award winning movie. And uh, so I'm, I mean, very emotional that you're sitting, sitting there seeing your son being, uh, you know, recorded in this movie. They finished recording. Ben has me speak to the cast. And so it was an honor to speak. And so we went to the Red Carpet premiere and then uh, got to go to the Canadian Embassy in D.C. where I met Ken Taylor. Ken Taylor was the Canadian ambassador. I was playing a lot of tennis back then. And there was a clay court and the ambassador saw I was a pretty good tennis player. He asked me, he goes, Rocky, would you be my partner? I said, sir, I'd be honored. Who do we have to play? And he goes, we have to play the Canadian ambassador and his assistant. A week before we're taken hostage, Bruce Lang and our charge d'affaires and I smoked Ken Taylor and his assistant. Little did we know, a week later, he would rescue our six people, which created the movie Argo, and, um, and the rest is history. I mean, just a great movie, and uh, Ben was a great guy. It was an honor to be on the set. And you guys had no idea those six people left the visa building and ended up over there. Yeah, Jacob, the morning of November 4th, uh, when we were stripped our freedom, our dignity, and our pride, that morning, you knew that there were about 65 people at the American embassy. It wasn't until 444 days later, January 20th, 1981, um, when they took us from the room. I mean, the first 30 days, I was tied to a chair. For the first 30 days, my arms were tied to the arms of the chair. My feet were tied to the feet of the chair. Other than your interrogations, were you allowed to speak? And if you've ever gone through a difficult time in your life, um, they put you in front of a plate of food. Well, you just, you didn't feel like eating. I mean, it, it was the least thing that you felt like doing. You didn't know if you were going to live or die morning, noon, or night. Um, and so it was 444 days later. They come into our room. Uh, we were locked in, this, uh, in a room for 400 days. Went outside seven times out of 444 days. We went outside seven times. You know what? Every morning I take a shower now. You know why? Because I can't. It took two months before I could even take a shower. That's why I had to do a bird bath. But anyway, that night of January 20th, they come into our room. And whenever that door opened, you jump because you didn't know if they were going to come in and start shooting or what. They come into the room, blindfold us, take us from the room. And I was the first one, Jerry Plotkin, the, other, the only American civilian, and Billy Gallegos, 
they had uh, their arm on each other's shoulder. Instead of turning right, we would turn left, walk down the corridor about 10 yards, stop, and the guard turns me, opens the door, and you felt this cold, fresh air. I mean, something that you hadn't felt for such a long time. And I walked out, and I walked in something I hadn't felt for two years, snow. And my toes were running with snow running through the toes. And I remember crunching through the snow. They put me onto a building. The vehicle starts, jumps a curb, turns right, and it drove for about 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, it made a right-hand turn, and you hear the sound of a jet engine. It starts winding up. And this is, this is something that you would pray for, you would hope for, you would cry for an opportunity. And the vehicle that we were in stops right behind the airplane. And they told us to unblindfold. And you start to slowly unblindfold. And here you are seeing people that you hadn't seen for over 444 days. And before you had a chance to, to really say anything, they start grabbing you and they open up and we were like in a stripped out school bus and they start chanting death to America, spinning on us as we were boarding this back of a tail of an airplane. Um, we get onto an airplane and a young girl, I hadn't seen a woman in 444 days, young girl, she takes me, walks me up and sits me down. Here you are freed and you would think that you'd be excited, right? Well, you're on this airplane and people are coming on and you're like kind of concerned, like, is this plane really going to take off? I mean, they're chanting death to America and you're boarding an airplane. It doesn't go well. All of a sudden they start closing the door. And you start looking around and you say, whoa, 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 wait, where's, where's, uh, where's Jacob? Where's Chris? Where's Josh? Where, where's Aaron? Where's Judy? Where's Debbie? Where's everybody else? Because you had no idea this whole time. You weren't like interacting with, with each other, no. sharing notes, nothing like this, reading the newspaper. No, you didn't know that they had released uh, others a year earlier and that we were the last of the 52 of the so-called 65, I think there was at the American embassy. And you could not, nor would you want to leave anybody behind in that shithole. And they assured us, they go, no, everybody is accounted for. And, uh, but yeah, so had no idea. And then the plane takes off. Well, (laughs) no, it doesn't take off yet. That airplane arrived on January 17th when President Carter released $8.3 billion with a B, not an M, a B, billion dollars. They delivered the cash. That airplane flew in right behind the cash. That airplane sat there for three days. And you have to give the Islamic Republic of Iran the mullah's credit. I mean, they're they're thugs. Um, They told us, our, our captors told us, it is not you, the American people we hate. It's your government. But we will use you to humiliate your government. And that's what they, they say, your government changes every four to eight years. And we are going to humiliate them. So what they did, it is January 20th, which is the inauguration back home. And all of a sudden they closed the door. They assured us everybody's there. The pilot starts taxiing down to the end of the runway, stops, turns left, goes a little bit further, stops, turns left, goes up a little bit further, stops. And he's got the foot on the brake and the plane starts shaking. And all of a sudden it comes back down to an idle. And I am telling you, Jacob, Chris, it's one of those things that, you know, the mind games that they played with us for 444 days, they won't ever go away. I mean, they turn the runway lights off. The pilot comes on the airplane. And I mean, this is just another mind game 
they tell us that they've turned the runway lights off. They won't let us take off until the runway lights are back on. They waited 20 minutes until President Carter was out of office and President Reagan was in office. Then they turned the runway lights on just to stab President Carter in the back. Because what did they do to President Reagan? In 1983, they killed 240 Marines. Yeah, Beirut. Beirut. And November 4th, 1979, Billy Gallegos and I were in the basement of the American Embassy when they broke in. I'm here to tell you, uh, Jacob and Chris, seven Marines held that American Embassy for four hours. Four hours in the heart of the capital of Iran. And the, the country never came to our aid. Finally, they break through the basement window of the embassy. And who do, the, who do these thugs bring in? But Iranian women in black shadows, and they use them as shields, pushing them forward. And the men were behind them, knowing the mindset that we would not shoot unarmed innocent women. And our, we're being screamed, don't fire, don't retaliate. Help is on the way. It never came. We, tear gas was popped. They all fled the building. And when we finally got up to the very top of the embassy where we waited there for like another hour. And then they start bringing people that uh, did not make it into the embassy. They brought them on the other side of the foreign steel door and were putting weapons to their heads saying, they got a gun to my head. If you don't open it, they're going to, they're going to kill me. Back in 1979, it was going to be 18 hours before any help got to us. Well, by that time, president Carter said, give yourself up and we'll get this resolved with diplomacy. And that was 42 years ago. And, say it, but there's not been any diplomacy um, with the Islamic Republic since. They have humiliated every president that we've had ever since. And that's why I kind of, my, my wife, God, I, re, I regret not ever pulling that trigger the morning November 4th, because what they did and what they've done since then, it's just, uh, it's sad. Yeah. And it, my understanding is part of the deal uh, to release you was some prohibition against seeking legal recourse against the government of Iran, right? I mean, this was against international law, how you guys were treated, and you absolutely have the right to, you know, um, get compensated. And that's still unresolved, right? That is correct. And, and again, you have to give Iran credit because in the last deal uh, to the United States uh, to release us, they had to make sure that we could not come back and sue them for what they did to us. I mean, it's called an, uh, an accord. And so we signed that accord and we've, we've held up to that accord, which is, is so sad because Iran's not held up to their accord. They continue to kill and take hostages. It's like, how do you allow that to happen? So, but there was recently in 2015, a, uh, a compensation piece that was to, to come about. But obviously I think we've received 1% of that uh, amount of compensation. So that is the sad part about it, Jacob, is, you know, everything that Iran has done, uh, they manipulate, humiliate. They've never been held accountable. Never have they ever been. Sanctions have really held them accountable. Um, and But it also uh, is concerning for the Iranian people. There are some Iranian people that want better. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I used to live in Vienna, um uh, when I was uh, in college, I, I did a two-year two mission in Austria and got to know um, a handful of Iranians and uh, two girls very well that we uh, taught English to. They would come to our classes and 
just awesome people, pro-American and so forth. They ended up back in Iran and um, I was actually connected on Facebook with them for a while. And it's an interesting situation, um, that whole kind of central area. And like, if anybody is allowed to absolutely speak their mind on this, it's you, Rocky. <laughs> I mean, having gone through what, what you've gone through. And so you're 20, it must have been 23 years old, Rocky, when you're back? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. When I came back. Yeah, sure. And by this time, I mean, you've gone through, uh, what, you know, through more than what most people would ever go through in an entire lifetime. And you're so young already. I mean, your brain's not even fully developed yet. You've, <laughs> you've gone through this. I mean, you end up having this amazing professional career, right? You end up with Anheuser-Busch. How did, how did that come about? Well, I can say when I came home, made my first phone call, I was in Germany uh, and I called home. I can still remember that, that phone call, uh, Jacob Chris. Um, my father used to always mess with my buddies whenever they would call the house and we had a party line. You know what a party line is? We had seven houses that were on the same party line. Right. And so anyway, the phone would ring a certain time. My dad would pick up the phone. He, yeah, crackle store. And all of a sudden, Oh, I'm sorry. I got the wrong number. Well, my buddy would call back again. It was just my dad playing a joke. That night I came home. My dad answers. I said, yeah, is this crackle store? He goes, no, this isn't Crocker's story. I say, hey, Dad, it's Rocky. And so, you know, very was, uh, humorous at that time. And so anyway, he talked to my mom, my dad, and my dad goes, Rocky, Jill's here. I said, she waited. And he goes, well, she wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking, well, shit, that doesn't sound too good. I mean, is she engaged? Is she married or, or what? I mean, it's a, she's a beautiful uh, woman before I left. and uh, No way she waits, right? Yeah, well. And so anyway, we start chit chatting and she finally says, Rocky, you got to make a decision, either me or the military, but I can't do this. And it was a travel that she was really concerned. I said, well, again, it wasn't the hostage situation. It was well, just the travel. Well, it is the hostage situation because my job would have taken me to other parts of the world. And so right. at the state department, she goes travel overseas. I said, well, yeah. And she said, no, I can't do it. You got to choose me or the military. And so I'd been in the service for about six years at this time. And so I said, okay, I, I definitely uh, support. And uh, I chose wisely, but she knew I still missed the military. So I got out, had a job with Camel X, CBS in uh, St. Louis. And so uh, going to night school, I then um, landed a job with uh, Anheuser-Busch in 1982. I hear that they have a program that helps to support the military. They sell beer to the military bases around the world. And I said, that's what I would love to get into. So sure enough, uh, I ended up being director of military sales for Budweiser for about 11 years. And Jill gave me the permission to travel abroad because that was one of the main, you know, main things is, I mean, there were three of us that sold beer to military bases all over the world and American embassies of all things. Hmm. So she did give me the uh, approval and, so, but yeah, and that's when I met, uh, you know, at that time, Major Rooney in 2007. If you can tell us the story, because Chris and I heard this from Major <laughs> Rooney back in August, I think, um, how he was, you know, he's got this very interesting background himself being a, a you know, PGA golfer and a oh, yes. uh, F-16 pilot and so forth. And he got um, this uh, kind of idea or mission to start Folds of Honor and uh, was trying to get in with Anheuser-Busch um, as, a, as a potential sponsor to, you know, to help fund these scholarships. And he's got this story from his side where, you know, he's like just trying to kind of brute force it by showing up every day and kind of being 
uh, politely annoying to get somebody at Anheuser-Busch <laughs> to actually talk to him. So uh, let's hear your side of the story. Yeah, no, and Lieutenant Colonel Rooney, he is an angel. I mean, an angel that came from heaven to provide over 35,000 scholarships to recipients. I mean, my story is just one of those 35,000. And it had yeah. not been for him uh, seeing that what happened and he and his wife forming his organization in the garage. And so you're right. He knew that there were about five organizations he had to get. So he buys a one-way ticket to St. Louis and he flies in. I'm the director of military sales for Budweiser. And I handle phone calls, uh, letters, uh, events, you name it. And I just so happened to be at my desk that day uh, down in St. Louis at the headquarters and security calls and says, Rocky, there's this guy in a flight uniform and he's downstairs and he wants to talk to somebody about a, a military program. I'm thinking that sounds pretty creative. And so I go downstairs and sure enough, I walk into the lobby and, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Rooney, I mean, being a, a pilot, you guys, it's, it's I've always wondered how do these skinny guys get to be so skinny? I got the chance to fly an F-15 and I can tell you, I sweat bullets that day. <laughs> and I understand why those guys look like they do because it, it's a heck of a workout. But anyway, he uh, says, Mr. Sickman, I'm uh, Major Rooney at that time. He goes, I've got this program I'd like to share with you. He didn't know who I was. We get a conference room. He tells me his story. I tell him my story. And uh, it was three years later. Um, what he wanted to do uh, at that time, Major Rooney, was do a, a military golf event. Well, at Budweiser, you have different pillars. You got Michelob, you got Bush, you got Budweiser. Michelob was golf. Then you got Bush that's in, you know, outdoors. Then you have Budweiser that's military. Well, he really wanted one of each, the Michelob and the Budweiser. But they said, no, Rocky, you got to either choose military or golf. And so it wasn't until three years later that uh, an event came forward that uh, Budweiser then put together a great program. And it was 2011. Uh, we've raised over $18 million uh, since then. From baby wholesalers, you know, uh, you're working with Rachel and you have the Hensleys down there. And Hensley helps to, to provide scholarships to those 85 recipients. But yeah, it was 2011 when we finally got it all put together. I retired in 2016. And the person that he had first met at Budweiser, uh, he asked me to come on board in uh, 2016 to continue to work with Budweiser. So I'm the senior VP of Bud Accounts. And so uh, each year we have different military programs with Budweiser. And so I continue to work with the Bud brand team at Budweiser to continue to raise awareness of Folds of Honor. And like I said, over $18 million uh, we've had in the past 10 years. Well, that's amazing. And uh, those scholarships have a mushroom effect because now you're affecting the third generation and so forth with the, you know, these children who are able to attend college who maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to, or they're saddled with significant debt in the pursuit of an education. It's an amazing story. And yeah, it's Lieutenant Colonel Rooney because he has since been um, given a new rank and promoted. Yes. So what, I mean, we, uh, when I pump my gas at uh, Quick Trip, and I apologize to Chris because, um, you know, I know he has loyalty to another brand, but I see um, the brochures for, for Folds of Honor. <laughs> at least it's Circle K. They're big in Arizona, but there's a Quick Trip by my house, Folds of Honor pamphlet next to the pumps. I mean, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rooney is really getting the word out um, about this. And my understanding is uh, 
it's such a well-run organization that the vast, like a, a very, very high percentage of the donations go directly to these scholarships. And, um, and we're happy to support it with Full Bay uh, through our Full Bay Cares program. But what can people who want to directly support Folds of Honor, what can they do uh, to help? Yeah, um, number one, 90 cents of every dollar goes back into helping the, uh, the recipient. And, you know, how can uh, your listeners help? I mean, there's a lot of drivers, there's people that work in the mechanic or that are military. Uh, I mean, it'd be interesting to know how many people that listen to your show are military. Um, I work with Travel Center of America and Exxon Mobil. We're doing a program right now that they know that they've got a lot of drivers that are military and they like to continue to salute them. So number one, I'm gonna salute all those that are driving out there that are military. Uh, you know, today being Marine Corps birthday, Semper Fi, uh, Double Bonds, happy birthday. And of course, Veterans Day. Um, how can people help, uh, Jacob, is really, you know, you've got a chapter. Rachel Chapman uh, is working diligently there in Arizona. Um, but we have about 31 different chapters around the country. What people can do if they want to find a chapter is go to foldsofhonor.org. And there is a tab at the very top, chapters, to identify if they can uh, become involved locally. If they want to do something, they can form their own marathon golf event. Um, they can uh, donate the Folds of Honor through a squadron program. And a squadron program is where Jacob and uh, Chris is that each month they can donate $13. And why do we think 13? Because there's 13 folds to a flag. And each fold has a specific meaning also. Uh, it's interesting. Many people don't know that there's a meaning behind each fold, but Anyway, $13 is what they can donate uh, each month to uh, Folds of Honor, which helps provide uh, continued scholarships to those 35,000 uh, know, recipients. Love it. It's a, it's a great cause. And um, Rocky, you, you, we salute you for you know, lending your credibility and your story to this cause of Folds of Honor. It's just, uh, I mean, it's an incredible honor for me to speak to you because I've you know. No, yeah, I love you. Thank you so much. But again, uh, Jacob, it's, uh, it's like I said, those eight guys, they flew through the night of April 24th into the morning of April 25th. They, they left their family behind and those eight never came home. So shame on me if, uh, if somebody calls and says, Rocky, would you do an interview? And if I don't do it, because those guys, they said yes. And I'm going to do anything and everything possible to help continue to tell that story because the American people need to remember freedom is not free because, you know, I, I've not seen in the news where people are dying to get out of our country. I mean, I think there's more people dying to get into our country than there are people dying to get out of our country. So this is a great country. And, uh, and we need to make sure we help uh, provide that 1% that care for our freedom, 1% of our population that's serving. I mean, it's, it's Thanksgiving uh, it's the holidays coming up here, guys. And I can tell you, I, I spent, what, five, five holidays out of town uh, overseas. And I tell you, you, you remember uh, your, your loved ones back home. And there are many loved ones that are going to be away from their loved one this holiday. So um, it is something I, I truly appreciate, Jacob, you and Chris, to continue to help support Holds of Honor because, you know, together – uh, we will continue to provide these scholarships to these recipients. So I salute you guys. Thank you so much, Rocky. Um, we're, we're proud to support Folds of Honor through Full Bay Cares. And the, the website is foldsofhonor.org. You can donate there or become involved in a local chapter. 
And uh, Rocky, great speaking with you. Thank you for your time and thank you for your service. And I uh, look forward to uh, continuing to watch you and the organization um, make a big impact. Well, thank you again, you guys, for spreading the word. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Diesel Stories Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and check out dieselstories.com for more episodes.